Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodina Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Moed Katan, daf Dalit, page four. Before we get started with this daf, just to remind everybody, if we're listening to this uh, in the earlier part of the day of January 16th, which is when this is being released, that we have our CM for Masachet Megillah today um, at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. in Israel. We have a wonderful guest speaker, um, Professor Shai Sekunda, um, who will be speaking to us. Uh, his is titled uh, Still Slaves of Achashverosh, Persian Ponderings on Masach and Megillah. Um, I think it'll be really an interesting seum. So please join us. If you don't have the link, uh, you can register to get the link on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And we look forward to uh, seeing many of you uh, later today. Um, but with that, I'm going to get to uh, the beginning of the DAP. And yesterday I talked about sort of a meta conversation that was taking place about the Bezdin of Rabban Gamliel. Uh, there was confusion over when do some of the restrictions of Shemitah start to take place. Uh, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel had an understanding that maybe we stop doing certain types of plowing as early as the Shavuot before uh, Rosh Hashanah. Then there became, you know, an idea that maybe it's only 30 days beforehand. Um, and that essentially, uh, you know, there was a discussion of sort of how could Rabban Gamliel undo sort of an opinion of uh, Rabbi Shimon, uh, sorry, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. How could, you know, Rabban Gamliel do that? And there was some discussion there about how exactly that would work. But part of what the Gemara wanted to, to sort of develop is, is that, you know, the halacha that, you know, some of this starts earlier Actually, you know, was it Halafla Moshmi Sinai? Or maybe it's even as strong as is that it's actually in the Psukim of the Torah itself. It's 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 actual Daraisa. And so here on this stuff, we get an opinion of Rabbi Ishmael. Rabbi Ishmael Mer, Maharish Rashud, Av Katsir Rashud. Haomer Mitzvah. So Rabbi Ishmael comments here that the verse that they were previously talking about, which he, he understands to be referring to Shabbat and not to the actual Shemitah year, is really just has a straightforward meaning, which means just as sort of optional plowing, right? That's what Harish Rashut means, is not allowed on Shabbat, right? There's no, uh, there's no case where sort of plowing is like an actual, you know, mitzvah, right? So the Avkatsir Rashut, right? So too, optional re- reaping is also not allowed, except for Yatsakatsir Omer Shehi Mitzvah except for the exclusion of reaping the Omer offering, which is an actual mitzvah, and that was allowed to be done on Shabbat. Now, remember, what is that that we're talking about? We learned this in Masachim, and we saw this, I think, in, uh, referred to in the Gemara a couple of other times, that uh, on, uh, on Tet Zion, on the 16th of Nisan, the Omer, right? This is the sort of the second day of Pesach, the Omer, the new grain crop sort of has to be reaped, and then a korban is brought, and then everybody can start to use their new grain crop. Um, so that is a mitzvah to do, and it needs to be done, and was actually allowed to be done on Shabbat itself. Um, and so uh, so the first opinion that was on the previous stop, right, is that of Rabbi Akiva, who holds that the prohibition against plowing um, on the, you know, on Erev, the sabbatical year, uh, was derived from a pasuk that they were talking about. I, again, I'm sort of summarizing very, very quickly here. And so then Rav Nachman comes and makes the following comment. Ella, I'm a Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak. 
Ki Gimri Hilchata Lemishre Ya Kray Lemeser Zikena. So Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak Haman says, when we learn this as a halacha that was basically given to Moshe from Sinai, it was permitted, right? You could plow sort of the young the young trees, the young saplings until Rosh Hashanah. But the verses, right, that we quote that prohibit, right, Kray, right, Kray, right, that 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 we that we that we uh, say that doesn't allow the plowing, right, is talking about zikena. It's talking about the more mature trees. And those are the trees that we're not allowed to plow 30 days before Rosh Hashanah. And that's really what all this was talking about, right? So then the Gemara says, wait, but since we want to say that this was the halacha that was given to Moshe, right? Halacha Moshe Misinai, that allows plowing basically these young trees up until Rosh Hashanah itself. So meaning on Chaf Tet, Elul, you can still be plowing for these young uh, for these young trees, right? Doesn't automatically mean that the mature trees it should be prohibited before Rosh before Rosh Hashanah. So therefore, you know the the this sort of kula what we allow is sort of these younger trees, right? Shouldn't we say that that's not just the only thing that was halachal Sinai, but the prohibition, the isor of saying that the mature trees you can't plow, right? That also should just be halachal Sinai. Why do you need a, a pasuk to actually teach this to you? So what do we say? And this is very interesting. The halacha, right, is halacha l'moshe misinai, right, and is basically what we say that the that not allowing plowing is up until sort of you know uh, up until the actual eve, right, up until actual Rosh Hashanah, right. This is the opinion of Rabbi Yishmael, who basically says that the verse that we were talking about that was on the previous page and the previous stop is talking about Shabbat and it's not talking about Shemitah at all. But the verses, those same verses are actually the basis of the prohibition for Rabbi Akiva. And so what we see here is, is that this is sort of a very classic machlokas between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva sort of very often have very, have very different approaches about how to interpret different things in the Torah. And it actually makes a difference in terms of how do you learn the halacha. So here, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Shmuel comes, sorry, he has a set of psukim, and he says, no, this psukim only refer to Shabbat. You can't learn anything about Shemitah from them. And then you have Rabbi Akiva, right? And he comes and he says, no, I'm actually going to say that those psukim refer to Shemitah, not only to Shabbat, and I learn X, Y, and Z halacha out of them. And so then finally, we have Rabbi Natan Amar, Okay, so now, right, so now the the Gemara basically, who tried to explain before how Rebel Gamliel's Beitin could basically nullify, right, some of this prohibition about plowing before Shemitah actually starts that had been put in place by Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Now the Gemara is going to bring another opinion about this, which basically holds that Rebel Gamliel's court okay, nullified this prohibition against plowing before the sabbatical year entirely. And so what Rabbi Yochanan says is, is that Rabbi Gamliel and his court nullified this, right? Any of this, the, any of the prohibitions that were there about working any part of the land before the Shemitah year started based on a source in the Torah itself. And what's that source? My time, what's the reason? Right, Damar Shabbat Shabbat. 
Rabbi Gamliel basically uh, learns it by making a gezerah shava, right? A word in one place, and then you learn something about that word from the context in another place. And so here the gezerah shava is from the word shabbat, right? And he learned shabbat shabbat mi shabbat bereshit from the word shabbat in the in the shabbat of creation, meaning the first shabbat. Right? Just as the Shabbat itself, you cannot do, you can't do any uh, labor before, right? And after, but, but before and after Shabbat, it's permitted to. In other words, on the regular Shabbat itself, it's just on Shabbat itself that you're not allowed to do malacha, right? That's what we learned basically, right? If you read those psukim and bereshit, that's what we basically learn. It's just on Shabbat itself, you're not allowed to do malacha. So here too, where it uses the word Shabbat in the context of Shemitah, right? We It's also, it's just the Shemitah year itself. But before and after the Shemitah year itself, meaning from that Rosh Hashanah, right? Uh, the Shemitah year before, and the Rosh, starting with the Rosh Hashanah of the year afterwards, you're allowed to do work because that's what the concept of Shabbat is. The concept of not doing malacha on a Shabbat, whether it's the 20, 24 hour period of Shabbat or 25 hours, I should say, or a Shemitah year, it's it, it's only at that particular time. There's no added before or after. Then Rabashi comes, Matkivla Rabashi, Manda Amar Hilchata. So Rabashi basically objects to this. And, you know, he basically says, right, that if Ramon Gamliel in his court basically nullified this based on this Gezer Shabbat, right? The one who said, right, who said this halacha that plowing before Rosh Hashanah, right, is basically a halacha. Can we say that a gezerah shava, right, is allowed to uproot a halacha that we previously said was halacha l'moshemisinai? So are you allowed to just take a gezerah shava, which is sort of a way of looking at things in context, you know, finding words and saying, okay, can I learn this halacha? But if we have a previous Masoru that says it's halacha l'moshmisinai, Ravashi is like, whoa, 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 Gezerah Shabbat can't uproot halacha l'moshmisinai. Umanda Amarkra, and for the one who says that we actually learn the plowing, not doing it 30 days before based on a pasuk, same question. We're going to say that Rav Gamliel can uproot something that's based on a pasuk, based on a Gezerah Shabbat, Ella Amar Ravashi. So, what does Ravashi say? Ravan Gamliel Beto Savri Lake Rabbi Shmuel. No, it's just that Ravan Gamliel actually held like Rabbi Shmuel. The Amar Hilchata Gimri Lehu, right? Who basically learned that this halacha was a halacha l'Moshe Misinai, right? V'chi Gimri Hilchata Bizman Shebeit Hamikdash Kayam. But this halacha only applied to when the Beit Hamikdash was standing. Dumiya Deniso Chamayim. Just like the Niso Hamai, right? That was the special water libation, which was part of the service that took place in the Beit Hamidash. And that also was just Halacha Lo. But when the temple is not standing, this Halacha doesn't apply at all. And therefore, Rabbi Gamliel and his Beitin were actually allowed to nullify uh, the, the, this prohibition about, you know, not plowing earlier than the Shemitah year actually started after the destruction of the temple. I, I find this whole passage to be interesting because I think it shows us a lot about the development of Halacha. First, we have a classic machlokas between Rabbi Yishmael and Rabbi Akiva, right, which I know started on the previous page and I sort of did my best to uh, 
try to uh, summarize. So you may want to look a little bit at the bottom of, of, of Gimel on the bet just to get a little bit more context. But it's a very classic machlokas, right? They have, there are different psukim. They use different methodologies, Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva, about how to interpret those. But they have real practical implication for how Shemitah actually would have been kept. And then we finally get back to this question of Rabban Gamliel, who clearly really changed something about how Shemitah had traditionally been kept, right? It seems that it really, the way it was traditionally kept is that it you, you really didn't plow for a period of time before Rosh Hashanah, at least 30 days beforehand. And here comes Ravashi to basically say, no, it, it's not that he, you know, undid it through a Gezerah shovel or by learning something new. It was rather his tradition was, and I think this makes a lot of sense about who Rav Gamliel is, a decision was made based on the post-Beit HaMikdash world. And in a post-Beit HaMikdash world, which is really Rav Gamliel and being in Yavna, and this was a lot of what he tried to do was sort of to strengthen uh, the Beit Midrash and his court and his Beit Din, he sort of really changes how Shemitah is basically uh, kept by saying, no, those things about, you know, not doing, not plowing only apply when the Beit HaMikdash is around. But when we talk about post-Temple Judaism, me and my court, this is where I'm talking like Rabban Gamliel, we're allowed to actually nullify that. And so I think we learned something very interesting about Rabban Gamliel here to really see, you know, sort of what he tried to do uh, to Halakha and, and some of the changes that he made, uh, w- which needs some explaining by the Gemara, because I, I think that shows us it was a very radical move on his part. I think what you're saying also points to, uh, let's call it an issue of leadership that was taking place during Rabban Gamliel's time in terms of, I, I understand that he had other people who didn't always agree with him and so on in terms of Paskin Halacha, but I think that for the most part, he was regarded as the big gun. And I think that in the time of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael, which was, you know, not that much earlier, but a little bit earlier, like there was still so much more fluidity, I would say, to Halacha in terms of which school of thought was going to, you know, win, you know, have the seize the day as the official you know, this is the way halacha works. And and it never quite became exactly that because always both are represented. Sometimes we pass in like one, sometimes the other, although I suppose Rabbi Kiva's approach more often wins. But my point is just that in the time of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael, there's it's more a scholarly um, and practical in terms of different schools of thought, but it was an I, um, I don't know, maybe this is not a fair thing to say, but it feels like maybe it was a more of an academic pursuit in that regard, meaning with a practical implication, but they're learning. And Rabbi Raman Gamliel was establishing, like, we must have a protocol because, because you know, the regular regular order of business was much more in the shambles. Um, by the time Rabbi Kiva's killed, of course, that was lo- no longer true, but, you know, it was no longer organized that they could just be learning, but Maybe this is, maybe historically what I'm saying is not accurate, but it, it I have that sense based, you know, even just coming off of what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear, right. So remember, just to give context, Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva are sort of a little later, I would say. And, well, they're all around the same time, but, you know, who sort of had more authority or, or was dealing with some of these issues earlier is definitely Rabbi Gamliel. So I, I think that is an interesting point. And I think things are still... Oh, I think I said it backwards. I'm sorry. I think I said Rabbi Shema. Never mind. Go ahead. Sorry. Right, so. I, I just want to correct myself. I don't want to... You know, every so often we get a call or a WhatsApp or an email saying, 
You know, you flubbed the the vocabulary. And I mostly feel like everybody's listening knows we meant the thing that we meant. But just in case anybody here is confused or thought that we were confused, we meant the thing that we meant. Go on. Sorry. Right. So, you know, Rabbi Gamliel, I think, yes, by the time Rabbi Akiva dies, it's also chaotic. But um, Rabbi Gamliel has a little bit of a different burden. He really has to establish sort of rabbinic Judaism in a way that's different than Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva. Right. That's what I meant. That in terms of the... I don't mean it as a historicity, right? I, you know, I can't tell yes. you how many hours in a row did they really get to learn uninterrupted. I don't mean it like that. But in terms of their tasks as rabbinic leadership, right? The leadership was a different job, so to speak, I think, for Rabban Gamliel as compared to the to their scholarship. Yes, that I would agree with, right? We're not talking about necessarily like accurate history, but more in terms of what their roles were. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to take us, you know, further on the daf and a little less meta. Um, okay. We, you'll recall that in the Mishnah, right, there's a discussion over the rainwater, right? That you cannot irrigate a, fo- a field with rainwater. And I found that to be an interesting statement as compared to these other ways you could irrigate a field because really, you know, what is the great task you know, what is the great exertion involved in collecting rainwater? And, of course, the Gemara wants to know as well. Right? These are the ways you cannot irrigate a field, not with the rainwater that's collected in a kind of a system. That well from that, you know, with a, with a very um, a deep well that has a particular kind of, uh, I don't know, pulley system, whatever, the goes in deep. Um, I've seen this translated as a shaduf. I don't know how you to pronounce that word. I don't know that word. I don't know what language that word is. I mean, it's the English translation of the of cologne, but kilone rather. But I, I don't, I'm unfamiliar with this term. Perhaps, Dana, do you know this term? Shaduf, shaduf? No. Shaduf? No. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to accent it. I apologize. You know, I feel like, you know, the little kids who read the words and then they don't know how to pronounce them because they've never heard it said. So we understand that for this for this pulley system, whatever this deep will well um, bucket thing that we don't that I don't know the English for that we understand it has a tirchiyatera. It is a great deal of effort to actually you know to maneuver it to work it. Ella make shamim my But what's the burden? Meaning, why is it? If you think, if we start with the assumption that the reason that we cannot irrigate. Um, the fields with these other watering devices is because they really involve a great deal of effort. Really, how much effort is there to collect rainwater? So they say the reason that you can't collect the rainwater is that there's somehow it's it's connected as a gzera, as a decree, together with this mekilon, that the same way that the mekilon is not allowed to be done because it's this greater exertion, so too you're not going to use it from the cistern. So Ravashi says, what happens is that then the rainwater itself will come to be like the water that is drawn with this kilon. What does that mean? That when you have rainwater, right, collected in a cistern, and then eventually it's going to drop down lower, right, because either it's going to evaporate or you've used some of it, right? And then you'll have to reach down into that cistern with your bucket to get the water. It will require extra effort like the Mekilon. I find this still a little bit surprising because 
I'm not sure how, you know, I, I don't know. I, the fact that the Gemara asked this question to begin with, like how hard is it to get the water from the cistern makes me think that maybe it's really not that hard to get the water from the cistern, unless we're talking about, you know, a really intensive system of a, of a mikvah where you have these like big pits deep in the ground. If you're going to try to get that rainwater out, then yes, I can understand why that is much more similar to to uh, to the Mekilon, as opposed to being just like, I don't know, a barrel that you have in your backyard to collect the rainwater, which seems to be an easy enough way. But this, the clearly what the, the system that is being prohibited here is a more intensive exertion. So what happens? The goes on to say that Rabbi Lai and Rabbi Ashi disagree with the opinion that was said by Rabbi Zera. I'm a Rabbi Zera, I'm a Rabbi by Yirmi, I'm a Shmuel. So what did he say? Rabbi Zera says that when you have streams that draw water from pools, right, meaning pools of water that has been collected, and some of that obviously is going to be rainwater, then you're allowed to use that, meaning you're allowed to pull the water from the pool, from the stream that draws the water from the pool, and irrigate the field with that on Cholamoid, meaning, and the presumption then is, because that that stream is constantly flowing, right? Meaning, so you're not having any, there's never going to be a change to the degree of your exertion, right? You just collect your water in your bucket, whatever, and you irrigate your field and you're good to go. Um, okay. But one person, specifically, perhaps, Rav Ashi, is of the opinion that like Rabbi Zera, he Really, one says it's like Rebizera, that you could, in fact, prohibit irrigating only with rainwater, because that supply might come to an end, but your flowing stream is okay. And then another sage, Leitle, Mar, Leitle, Mar, Mar here, it, it always translates to be Mr., right? One of these guys, one of these sages, pardon me for calling them guys, of again, Rav Ashi as compared to Rabbi Yochanan. What does Rabbi Yochanan say? That it's not according to the opinion of Rabbi Zera, because Rabbi Zera prohibits irrigating with the rainwater because it's like the Mekilon. So then that's about the rainwater dropping. So then Rabbi Yochanan's position was that he would prohibit collected water even if there was a stream coming to it, right? Meaning, let's say you've got collected water that's always being fed by a stream, as opposed to pulling water off the stream then you wouldn't be concerned that it would dry up, and that's apparently not according to the opinion of Rabbi Zera. Gufa, and now again, the Gemara comes back to look at the same question. Amar Rabbi Zera, Amar Rabbi Bar Yirmiya, Amar Shmuel, Neharot Moshchin Mayim Min Hagamim, Mutar Lashkot Mehen Bucholoshol Moed. And explicitly, what does he say? That streams that pull their water from the pools of water, that, right, streams that pull water from the pools of water, you can use it to irrigate your field on Cholomoed. Rav Yirmiya asks a question now. But fine, you're still saying that you can irrigate from this particular stream, but not from rainwater and not from this deep well. So Rav Yirmiya wants to know, like, why aren't you worried that the pool of water is going to run out the same way that the rainwater would run out, let's say. And Rabbi Zera says, Yermia, Bari, my son, right? Now, that's not technical, right? That's a, an endearment. Um, the water in Babylonia is like water that never stops flowing, meaning you don't have to worry. This is a rainy country. There's plenty of rain. Don't worry about it. We can continue to irrigate the fields in Cholamite, which I think is particularly interesting to me 
because we've been talking about irrigation as a matter of Eretz Yisrael, right? We've been talking about, in, at least in our supposition, right, the question of who they are, what they can do on Cholmoid, connecting it to Shemitah, which is an only Eretz Yisrael type of thing, and where all of this, like, how much effort you need to exert to get your water to your field is, you know, a very good question in a more dry, you know, country that needs a great deal of irrigation, right? Israel, modern Israel, of course, is a, a master of sophisticated irrigation. And and here, Rabbi Zera's comment about, like, you don't have to worry about this in Bavel because the the rain level, the, the water level from the pools will never dry up because there's just tons of water here. You know, it kind of brings that whole discussion into those who must have been farmers or at least to some degree in Bavel. And I, you know, I don't have anything much more exciting to say on that, except to draw the point that how we handle the water, some of these questions of how we irrigate, how we do anything is going to depend on the location and what degree of tircha, what degree of, of effort there is. And then, of course, there's going to be a question always, right? Like, well, if it's not an effort, if it doesn't take any effort, is it included in that gezera or is it not included in that gezera? Perhaps it's really fine to do this in Bavel or is it going to be included because of um, because of Eretz Yisrael? The Gemara doesn't go that far here. I'm just raising it as, you know, the way the, the logic follows through because that's always the way when there's a decree. You know, is it a decree no matter what, that this is the decree on the practice and it will not differ based on locale or conditions or so on? Or is it the kind of decree that was very specific and and usually then there's a, some kind of machokot over which kind it's going to be? Yeah, I think we're going to learn a lot about sort of agricultural practices of Eretz Yisrael. Um, and like Mesecha Tanit, I think we're also seeing on this stop some of the differences between Babel and uh, Israel in terms of their reign, right? Like one of the things we saw in Tanit, and we see it here also, is Bubba had a lot more access to water. I think there were many more rivers and, uh, you know, things sort of, uh, there was a lot more, it wasn't just rain, but it sounds like from the description in Tanit that there was just a lot more access to water. And that clearly was not the case in Israel. So, you know, it does impact where some things are allowed and where some things are not allowed. So, I, you know, will continue. It's just interesting to see it in a totally different halachic context, right? One context was in Tanit in terms of needing to pray for rain and for water. Here is in a different context of what are you allowed to do on Chalamoid or not allowed to do on Chalamoid. I really like that observation. Thank you for that. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about the DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.